0: Well, let me welcome you guys as well. Really good to have you with us. If you're visiting with us, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be in Acts uh, chapter 8. I'm going to uh, read a few portions of Acts 8 to us uh, shortly. If you've not got a Bible, just pop your hand up and uh, Andy or Beth might grab you on at the back there. Uh, But Acts chapter 8, just while you're turning there, let me ask you this question. Uh, why, why are you here? Why are we here? And I don't mean that as a kind of a ethereal question, you know, individually, like, you know, what am I doing here? I mean, us as a church, Liberty Church, or whatever church that you would call home. Like, why are you where you are? Why are we Liberty Church here at the end of Lark Lane and Egbert in the city of Liverpool? Why are you in whatever church you call home? Why, why is your church where it is? Or well, where we live here in this area of Liverpool, there are somewhere near 10,000 people who live in these streets around us. And somewhere near 2% of that 10,000 people would say that they attend an evangelical church somewhere in this city. 2%. And we're talking about attendance there. So when we, when we think about you know people who actually go along to church, not everyone really is, is probably and likely born again. So... So we could say that probably less than 2% of the people who live in the streets around us would be born-again Christians out of 10,000 people. That's why Liberty Church is here. That's why we planted this church where we planted it here. In Lark Lane, we planted it here because we care about that number. 98% of the people who live in this area would not see Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, would not be able to sing with confidence what we've just sung, that their hope is found in hit 98%. That's why liberty is here. That's why we planted this church here five years ago, because we care about that number. We care about nine, not, not the number 98%, we care about the souls that are represented in that number. That is why Liberty Church was planted here, because we care about those souls. Last week, we talked as we thought about being a people of transformation. We talked and saw how the Bible uh, talks of, of humans as being those who, who are embodied souls. You know, we're not just flesh and bones. Like we, There isn't just a physicality to us. There is a physical nature to us, but we are embodied souls. There are things within us, there is a soul about us that has Eternal value. We are embodied souls, which means we have eternal futures. And in his loving kindness, the Lord Jesus Christ has made a way through his perfect life, through his atoning death, through his victorious resurrection and ascension to the Father. He has made a way for us to spend that eternity with him. We have eternal futures and he has made a way for us to spend that eternity with us, And if you read the Bible, folks, there is no other place that you would want to spend eternity. When you read the Bible and eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ is the only place that you would want to spend eternity. Because he is perfect peace. He is perfect joy. He is perfect love. We wouldn't want to be anywhere else. So, so eternity with him is where we want to be. And conversely, eternity without him is definitely a place that we don't want to be. And that is clear in the Bible. And we need only put our faith in him for salvation from sin, Satan and death. If we want to spend eternity with him. But if you don't, the Bible is clear. Your eternal future will be one of suffering judgment for your sin yourself. He offers to take that for you. In his death on the cross, he offers to to stand in your place. As your substitute, he offers that for you. But if you don't accept that offer by faith, the Bible is clear. You will suffer judgment for your sin yourself. And that is the eternal future for 98% of the people who live here. That's why we planted this church. In this place, specifically in Liverpool. It matters that Liberty Church is here. And it matters what we do, folks, while we are here. We've been reminding each other of our vision over the last few weeks, our vision to hold out and hold on to truth. As we pursue transformation in our lives and others, practising a tangible presence as we go. And this week, as we look at being a people who practice a tangible presence, this is what we mean. It'll pop up on the screen here. Beneath each of our values, truth, transformation and presence, we have a bit of a subtext. And so there's our vision. And here is the subtext of being a people of tangible presence. We will enjoy and practice a tangible presence in our community through word and deed. So we want to be a church who hold onto and hold out truth. Like we are, we are rooted and grounded. Our foundation is in the gospel. We are gospel-centered. We are people who will never depart from the gospel. Our foundation is scripture and the truth that we find in it. And we want to disciple each other. We want to be continually transformed more and more into the glorious likeness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we will disciple each other through spirit-empowered word ministry in the context of the community. We saw that last week. And here is a people transformation, we want to be we want to be a missional people. That's what we mean when we talk about, about being tangibly present in word and deed. We want to be missional. And folks, a church that isn't missional, a church that isn't tangibly present in their community through word and deed. A church that isn't missional, folks, it isn't really a church. Or at best it's a church who've lost their way. The mission of God is central to the purpose of the church. So right at the start of the book of Acts that we're in this afternoon, don't worry about and there, it'll come up on the screen right at the start. We read this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is, is meeting his disciples before he ascends to be with the Father and he gives them his mission and this is what he says. You will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses you will be those who testify about me and what I've done. You will be those who proclaim the truth about, about, about all of, of what I've done for you. You will be my witnesses firstly in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. So Acts chapter 1 verse 8, that is the how for the what That we find in the rest of Scripture. Let me just explain what I mean by that. Acts chapter one, verse eight is the is the how for the what that we find in the rest of Scripture. So from beginning to end, right from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, what we find in here is, is the mission of God, which is to call a people to himself. Right from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, we see that God is calling a people to himself. He is on a continual mission right from the start. To redeem guilty sinners out of a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of death. And to redeem them into the kingdom of his glorious son, which is a kingdom of light and a kingdom of life. That's the what of the mission. From Genesis to Revelation, we see that that is what the mission of God is. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8. We just skip back one uh, miles. Acts chapter one verse eight, and other texts like Matthew twenty eight nineteen to twenty. They tell us the how of the mission. How is that going to happen? How is God going to gather people to Himself? How is He going to draw people out of darkness into His kingdom of light? Well, well, this is the how. It is through the church. It is through His people being His witnesses. To the ends of the earth. The Apostle Paul, when when he's writing to the church in Corinth, he puts it like this in in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. He says, we are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. So, So God is appealing to the world. He is calling out to the world. He is, he is calling out and beckoning a people in. He is calling out. He is appealing to the world, telling them that your sin is leading to judgment. Your sin is leading you to eternal judgment, but I have made a way. I've made a way for you to escape that. So leave your sin and put your faith in my son for forgiveness of sins and eternal life in him. God is appealing he's appealing to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And in his sovereign wisdom, he's appealing through us. He's calling through his church. We are his ambassadors for his mission. See, folks, often when we think about mission and being a missional people, often we kind of stumble and falter a little bit because we think, well, I've just got so much to do already. I've got a really busy schedule. I've got a job to go to. I've got a family to provide for. I've got things to do. And, and what we find ourselves doing as Christians is, is seeing the busyness, busyness of our schedule, all the things that we've got to do in life, and then thinking, well, well I've got to be missional. Where, like, where do I fit in mission into my schedule? Well, when we think about being Christ's ambassadors, actually, we're able to flip that on its head. So you think of, what, think of what an ambassador does. An ambassador is someone who represents a country and their interests. They represent the mission of that country. And, and the way that an ambassador functions, it's not like, like one day they're, they're an ambassador and then, and then they go off and do the, the other stuff. Like they are always on duty. Like whether they're meeting dignitaries or whether they're eating breakfast, they are always on duty. They are always fulfilling the role of an ambassador. Their identity as an ambassador shapes their activity, not the other way around. And it's the same with us as ambassadors of Christ. Our identity as Christians, our representation of Jesus and his mission is what shapes our activity, not the other way around. So if we understand this rightly, folks... Instead of seeing our busy schedules as all this stuff that we've got to do, and then we fit in mission underneath. Instead of seeing it that way, we can actually see our busy schedules as the place that mission is taking place. It's the place that that, that God has sovereignly placed you. And actually you go into that space, whatever it is, whatever you're doing, as his ambassador. And so think, there's a few teachers of us uh, a few teachers amongst us here think instead of, of of you being a teacher who is a Christian, think about you being a Christian who is a teacher, and you have a unique mission field in that school, a mission field that i can 't tap into that, that other people here can 't tap into busy mums you 're a Christian who is a busy mum. And you have unique context, unique opportunities to to engage with people. You're a Christian who is a social worker. And you have unique mission fields to engage with in your office. You're a Christian who is a neighbour. You're a Christian who works in retail. You're a Christian who is a student. You're a Christian who is retired. Folks, our schedules are barriers to our missional activity. They are the primary spaces for our missional activity folks, I believe that if we begin to reshape our thinking to see our primary identity as Christians, as ambassadors of Christ, that we will honestly begin to see fruit in our mission that we haven't seen yet, that we haven't seen before. Especially when in those places we are tangibly present in word and in deed. That's exactly what we see in Acts chapter eight with Philip. Philip is one of Jesus' disciples and he finds himself in Samaria. And we'll see that he is there under difficult circumstances, but he is present in word and deed. And he sees what we long to see in Lark Lane, folks. He sees what we long to see in this city. He sees a city transformed as he is present in word and deed. But before he sees that, he learns that the mission of God is opposed. Look down. Verse 1, let me read verses 1 to 3, and then we'll jump down the page a little bit. Luke, who writes uh, this letter here, he's talking on the back of Stephen being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. And then this is what we read. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Skip down to verse Nine, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. See, there are two kinds of opposition that Philip encounters here. And they are two ways which we encounter opposition to the mission of God as well today. Firstly, there is opposition to the mission of God from those who are physically trying to destroy the church. Like Saul was doing in verse 1 and 3. And that is an opposition that we still see today as we gather together as a church every month to pray. We take time As we gather to pray for for countries across the world, countries in places like Asia and the Middle East and parts of Africa, places where this kind of physical persecution is still being carried out. This week, as we gather, we prayed for Morocco and we pray for the persecuted church in in Morocco who are still experiencing this kind of physical oppression where, where people are coming together trying to destroy the church, just like Saul was trying to destroy the church here. So there is the physical oppression, but then as we see in verses 9 to 11, there are also spiritual forces at play who stand opposed to the mission of God. We see the example here is Simon, the magician, and what he's doing is he's offering a worldview, a worldview that is contrary to the truth of the gospel and he's offering this out. This is his, his worldview. You know, if you come and you, you watch these spectacular acts and you see how great I am, then, then you'll find a way to life. Think about all the different worldviews we saw in the first week of our series, these alternative ways to truth that we find in our culture. Anti-authoritarianism, sentimentalism, secularism, progressiveness, licentiousness, all these different worldviews and like the crowds and like Simon here in Acts chapter 8, people follow these worldviews, thinking that they are a way to life when in reality they are being stolen from the way to life, which is only found in the truth of the gospel. And so folks, as we step into our unique contexts, as we flip things on their head and see that we are Christians who are sovereignly placed into these unique contexts, be aware that the mission of God will be opposed there. That you will meet resistance. You will meet worldviews that are competing against the truth of the gospel. The mission of God is opposed. But be emboldened by this. The gospel is stronger than any opposition In that city. Just skip over to verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptised both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptised. He continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. See, in verse 1 and 3, we see that Saul's intention is to destroy the church. But isn't it wonderful how just God's sovereign plan works out? Remember, all the disciples, the apostles, they're in Jerusalem. And then this persecution comes on the church. Stephen is stoned out. Now remember, just have in mind the mission that Jesus gives them in Acts 1.8. He wants them to be his witnesses where? From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And and Saul's intention in the first few verses to destroy the church is flipped on its head. As we see, if you look at verse one in chapter eight, actually the persecution leads to the gospel being spread into Judea and Samaria. That's what happens when the disciples scatter. The gospel is stronger than any opposition, folks. Then look what happens with this chap, Simon. In verse 10, like look specifically at the words. Like Luke is trying to show something here as he writes it. In verse 10, the crowds are gathered around Simon and they are paying attention. Right? They are paying attention. Like, remember that phrase. then in verse 11, they look at his sorcery. They look at this alternative worldview that he is is trying to lure them in with. This this alternative truth that he's trying to show them is a a false way to life. And in verse 11, Luke says they are amazed. They're paying attention and they are amazed at this compelling worldview that he offers them. But then in verse 6, Philip turns up and Philip preaches the gospel And now, same word, they pay attention to Philip. And in verse 11, same word, they are amazed. And what happens next? The crowds believe and they are baptised, including Simon. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Folks, the gospel is stronger than any opposition, physical or spiritual. And I know so often when we step into our context, because of the secular world that we live in, it feels so often like we're on the back foot when it comes to mission, doesn't it? It feels like, especially when we read the headlines and we look at the statistics, it feels like like this is a hard space for us to engage in mission. And it is. But as we look at Acts chapter 8, we can be encouraged and we can be motivated and we can be empowered that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is stronger than any opposition. Jesus will make his appeal through us and he can and he will do amazing things when we are present in word and deed. But first, folks, we need to be present. We actually need to be there in those places, where people need to hear. You know, it's so striking when you look at you look at how Philip <coughs> goes to Samaria and what he does. On the back of seeing his friend being stoned to death, he doesn't give up. He finds himself in Samaria. And in verse 5, he goes down to the city. And he amazes the people through word and deed. But don't miss first that he's present, he's there. Like he could have decided just to hide away in the house and, 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 and kind of flee from the persecution, but he goes into the city. He puts himself into the place, into a context where he knows people need to hear. That's important for us too, folks. And I know that some of you, because you told me, some of you don't have any relationships with unbelievers. You don't have any friendships with people who need to hear the gospel. I know it's difficult I know you want to have those relationships, but, but you don't maybe know how. Let me give us a few ideas just to help us out, a few handles, a few tools of how we can be a people who are present. Firstly, be regular. Be regular in the same places. Go to the same place to do your weekly shot. Go to the same place to get your hair cut. The same place to eat out. The same place to get your coffee. Get to know the staff in that place. Go to the the same place and be there at the same time so you get to see the same people. And as you get to know those people, ask them questions. Be a regular, build relationships. Secondly, eat with people who aren't Christians. Most of us here will have 21 meals in in an average week. Some of us more, some of us less. But around 21 meals, three meals a day in a week. Why not make a habit of sharing one of those meals with someone who isn't a Christian? Take lunch with a colleague. When you go out for a meal, invite other people to come. Maybe just start with one meal a week. One meal out of 21. As much as you can, walk, don't drive. That's not a political statement. That's just an evangelistic statement. I have a friend in the States who... When he wakes up in the morning, he gets up at like stupid o'clock, half four, five o'clock, stuff like that. And he spends an hour and a half just walking around his neighborhood praying. An hour and a half. Make a habit of walking, maybe just start with your street. Just your road. Like walk it at the same time every day. Be deliberate in your walk. Say hello to people that you begin to recognize as you're out at the same time. Take an interest in your neighbors. Ask them questions. Pray as you go. Participate in community events. Get involved in things that are going on here litter picks, the farmers market. Maybe you could initiate your own events. Some of us live in areas where there's communal gardens and communal things going on. Maybe you could initiate starting something off that will draw other people in so you can strike up conversations and build friendships. Take up a hobby with people who aren't Christians. You know, evangelism can be fun. <laughs> Do something that you enjoy, running, cycling. Apparently bridge is a sport, something like that. Join a choir, arts class, music classes. Get amongst people, folks, and be prayerful as you're there. Be intentional, be deliberate with your conversations. Can I plead with those particularly liberty, folks? Can we push against the selfish Christian subculture of doing everything that we do with other Christians? Say selfish because that's what it is. It's an easy route. It's a comfortable route. And when we think of the 98% of the people out there who don't know Jesus and we think of where they're going, it is selfish. Push against it. Open up your life so these people can come and engage with you and build relationships with you. Philip's first step in Samaria was to get up out of his chair and go and be present with those who needed to hear. But he wasn't just present, was he? He was tangibly present. Firstly, he was tangibly present in the word. Let me just scoot through these here. Verse four, Philip preaches the word. Verse 12, he preaches the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, those in Samaria, they receive the word of God. As we go on and we see John and Peter, they come along, they testified and they spoke the word of the Lord and they preached the gospel. Verse 35, as the story goes on, he meets an Ethiopian eunuch and he tells him about the good news about Jesus. At the end of the chapter, Philip preached the gospel through all the towns. And it isn't just Philip. God always makes his appeal to the world through us holding out his word. Us being nice people, us grabbing coffee in the same place at the same time, us getting our hair cut in the same barbers. Folks, that is not going to save those people. It is the power of the gospel that leads to salvation. And the 98% of people out there that we long to be one into the eternal family of God, they are lost and they are blind. And the gospel is the only light that we have to show them their way to truth and life. At the end of Acts chapter 8 we see Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch. And, and the Ethiopian eunuch gets this. In verse 28, Philip goes out to the desert place away from Samaria. He meets this Ethiopian who works for the royal family, who just so happens, as he's riding in his chariot, just so happens to be reading a portion from, from Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant. You know, he just so happens to be reading about, about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes to the conclusion, he's reading, he's got, he's got the gospel in front of him. But in verse 31, he says, to, he says this to Philip. How can I understand unless someone guides me? Like he's got the word of God in his hands and he still can't see it. And so Philip explains the gospel to him. He leads him to truth. He shows him Jesus. And the Ethiopian is saved. and he's baptised as we are present folks, as we put ourselves in these places and as we see the context that we are in as sovereignly appointed places that God has placed us as his people, as we are building relationships with those who aren't Christians, be prayerful about how you would introduce them to the gospel. Look for opportunities. And it's probably not going to be like Philip engaged here. It's probably not going to be us standing on a street corner preaching and and teaching the gospel like he did in Samaria. But it could be maybe, here's a few suggestions asking, asking your friend or asking a colleague just good questions that provoke spiritual conversation. You know, simple questions like this What do you value most in life? Like, what, what are you living for? What do you think is going to happen after you die? You know, it's a heavy question, but it's a interesting like what do you think what do you think about church what do you think about Jesus just asking those those simple questions that can lead to spiritual conversations or what about inviting them along to to social events that you know other Christians are going to be at where where spiritual conversations will be happening film night star wars night Meals that we might have together, walks in the parks where where other Christians are gonna be there. Other film nights are available, I'm sure, but that's just a a liberty quirk there. Other events that that you know other Christians, other people in the life of our church will be, and and spiritual conversation will just naturally happen and they can they can hear it going on. What about offering to read a Christian book together? And you might be thinking, not in a million years, like my friends wouldn't read a Christian book. For twenty years, folks, I've been trying this with my friends. Honestly, 20 years. And I've come to the conclusion, at the very least, they get the gospel into their home. And it might sit on a bookshelf for decades. But at some point, they may pick it off and read about Jesus. For 20 years, I've been trying it with lots of my friends, and none of them have been willing to read it until this year, and one has. And I'm reading uh, Tim Keller's Reason for God with one of my friends. In fact, we're doing it on an audiobook. So even if you're not very good at reading or you haven't got the time to read... Audiobook Or what about looking out for those moments in their life, those circumstances in their life where you know the gospel speaks a better word. You know the gospel brings a balm of hope that could show them the beauty of Jesus. You know, those moments in people's lives where there is suffering, where there is grief, where they're battling with unforgiveness. Like when you recognise those things in your friends' lives, in your colleagues' lives, what about taking the bold step to say, know this might sound crazy, but I'm a Christian, can I pray for you? And because we're British, they'll say yes, because they don't want to be rude and say no. <laughs> Honestly, you'll be surprised. And you pray for them, as you're praying for them, you pray the gospel over them. And they're listening to it. But you're also praying. You're inviting the Lord to do a work in their lives. And all of this, folks, it's all underpinned by prayer. And we're going to see next week how prayer opens so many doors of opportunity in the mission. We want to see the lost saved, don't we? We want to see sinners baptized like we see here in Samaria. And if that is what we want, we've got to give them the gospel and guide them to Jesus. There is no other way. No other way than to be present in the word. And as we close here, present indeed as well. Look back at Philip in Samaria here. The crowd are paying attention to Simon the sorcerer and they're amazed at his magic acts. But then Philip comes into the city and in verse six, they listen to Philip as he shares the word of God and they watch him. They're observing. They're watching Philip as he performs miraculous deeds amongst them. And Simon, Simon the magician, Simon the sorcerer, he's watching the the deeds that, that Philip is doing. He's watching the miracles. He's watching the healings in verse 13. And Simon is amazed at what he sees. See folks, what we do as we're present in our community is a powerful way of tangibly witnessing to Jesus. Not just what we say, but what we do as well. And just so we're clear, we're talking about we're talking about deeds that point to Jesus. Not just being nice people. Not just doing nice things. Like Luke deliberately talks of Philip's deeds as signs. Much like John talks about signs in his gospel. Philip talks about, uh, Luke talks about Philip's acts here as signs. Because they're pointing to someone. They're pointing to Jesus. And for Philip, his signs were healing the lame. Casting out Demons. As much as we as a church still believe that Jesus can work in those ways amongst us, the deeds that we perform as we are in the context that we find ourselves, they're likely to be different. But they can still evoke the same amazement. Particularly because of the spiritual darkness around us. Think of how just in the places that you work, in the places that you you spend with your children and the places that you just conduct your daily business. Think about how, how responding to hurt that has been done to you with grace can powerfully point to Jesus. Think about how, as, as we welcome those who are on the margins of society, the people that other people just don't have time for. The people that that, that wind are the people of the people that expend our resources and our energy. Think about how welcoming those people into your life by giving them a seat at your dinner table, a place on your couch. Think about how welcoming those people on the margins of society can powerfully point to Jesus. Think about particularly at the moment, just in the world that we live in. Think about how being a peaceful presence in places of anger and bitterness Powerfully point to Jesus. Think about how being a people of salt and light in a world of darkness can powerfully point to Jesus. See, Philip was tangibly present in word and deed in the place that he found himself. And the result of that mission, as we see in verse 8, the result of the mission was this there was much joy in that city. The community in Samaria was transformed. Philip went down into the city. He saw the need. He knew who he was. A witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he made himself present in word and deed. And by the power of the spirit. The city was transformed. There was much joy in that city. Because men and women turned from their sin and turned to Jesus. Men and women who were once destined for eternal judgment turned and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of their sins and there was much joy in that city. People who were wrapped up in the occult and new age type practices that we see all around us in our community bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and so there was much joy in that city. A city that once was absent of the gospel received the gospel. put their faith in it and so there was much joy in that city. They were saved and they were baptized. And folks, as we think about the context that we find ourselves in here, Egbert, Liverpool, where 98% of the people outside of these doors don't know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Oh, would it be that in generations to come, people would look back and write about our city, our place in the same way that as they see that many people were transformed by the beautiful truth of the gospel. That as they see many people turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of their sins, that as they see many people in our community come out of the occult, come out of the new age and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that as they see a community transformed, they would say, It was much joy in that city. Oh, the people would write that for Larkline, and write that for Egmont, and write that for Liverpool, and write that for Manchester. And write that for Northern Ireland. And write that for the places and the spaces that God has sovereignly placed his people. Mm. Amen. Oh, that someone would write that in this place, because God's people were tangibly present in word and deed, that there was much joy here. Mm. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer. You would fill this place, you would fill this city and all of the places that are represented in this room, that you would fill them with joy, specifically with the joy of your salvation. You have brought to these people. So use us, we pray. Remind us of who we are and the places that you've put us. Remind us that we're your people. Remind us that we're your church. Remind us that we are ambassadors of Christ. Remind us that you desire to make your appeal through us. And Lord Jesus, many of us are nervous at the prospect of being your witnesses. Many of us are discouraged because we have tried this and we just seem to be confronted with failure after failure. Many of us are disillusioned because we just see The the culture that we're living in continually pressing in against the gospel. So Jesus encourages us today. Encourages even now as we sing and as we reflect on the gospel, as we sing together. Encourages, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Remind us of the power of gospel in, in our lives. Remind us of the transformation that you have brought in our lives. Convince us that you can do it again. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would burden us and embolden us. Give us spiritual eyes to see the great need around us. A need that you have sovereignly placed us here to meet. Holy Spirit, help us to feel the burden of a lost people heading to an eternity outside of the love of God. And embolden us. Embolden us this week to go to go and be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, to go and be present in word and in deed. And for the glory of God and for the joy of those people that we pray. Amen.